Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, Tamir, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jeremy. Looking forward to being here. Well, I'm excited because I got to know you at Entrepreneur First, and it's been awesome to see you not only have been a serial founder, but also joined the YC batch. So very much congratulations on that and wanted to talk a little bit more about your story over the past few years. Awesome. Thank you very much. Really looking forward to chatting about it. Yeah, it's crazy to think how EF Entrepreneur First was just a couple of months ago and how much has changed since then. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourself. So... I am originally from South Africa. I was born in Johannesburg. I would say kind of maybe my story in all honesty begins with competitive gaming, <laughs> which is a bit of a different, maybe an unexpected answer. So I used to play more computer games that was healthy when I was younger. However, what that pushed me to do or inspired me to do is get really interested in computers because I was really interested in how to improve the performance of my game in order to be a better player. And as I was doing that, I was like, hey, this computer stuff is pretty fun and you can do some pretty cool things with it. And I was like, oh, you can get paid to do that because my parents were not going to let me be a professional gamer for a living, even though I wanted to. So I was like, okay, I'll do the next best thing and go into computers. So I decided to study electrical and computer engineering at the University of Cape Town and went through university two years. I'm sure we'll get into it, but I started a startup because I was getting quite frustrated at the university system. I didn't feel like I was learning a lot. I built that startup. It was a big inflection point in my life, my career, and my outlook. But I would say that's a okay spark notes on me. Awesome. So I got to ask, what games were you playing? It was Call of Duty. Oh, Call of Duty. Call of Duty 4 in specific. You got to tell us what was your favorite loadout. <laughs> if anyone's listening, it was Call of Duty 4. So was, you had very few loadouts and a version called Pro Mod. So I like playing SMG, AK-47U, rushing people, being fast. I think it's reflecting now similarly. Like I don't enjoy sitting still. I enjoy moving. So I think that personality trait has kind of extended through it. <laughs> okay, so there you are and instead of becoming a pro gamer, you decided to learn to be an engineer. So why do you choose that major? Was it just because you wanted to be more of computers? Yeah, I guess I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I had no idea what I wanted to study at the time. And this seemed like a good bet because I was just studying computers for fun. So I was just programming different things in C++ to Java just because it was cool. And I was like, okay, if this can turn into a career and I'm enjoying it, let's go for it. And as well, the general thing was like engineering seems to be quite flexible. So half of my class ended up going into consulting, which has nothing to do with engineering. So I guess the, the flexibility of engineering appealed to me at the time. What's interesting is that while university were very entrepreneurial, so tell us, how did I get started? So it was my second year of university where, or rather, maybe, I can't remember, second or third, but I remember when I first arrived at university, the experience I had trying to find textbooks was a nightmare. So I arrived in my first lecture, my university professor told me I needed to buy like these three textbooks and a quick Google search showed me they're going to cost like a thousand rand plus, translating that to like roughly a hundred dollars. 
And I was broke. I was a broke student. How on earth was I supposed to afford this? Finding it secondhand was an absolute nightmare. I tried secondhand platforms. I tried notice boards and it just wasn't a fun experience. My thought at the time was like, okay, if this is my experience coming from like a position of privilege. I was in a very lucky position where my parents were able to sponsor me to go to university, which isn't the case for most students in South Africa. If this was my experience struggling to find textbooks, what is the experience of 99% of other students? So that was the experience I had. And it took until my third year of university where I was, I was just bored with university. I didn't feel like I was learning enough and said, okay, let's try build something. I had this idea of trying to solve this problem that I had in first year. So built a secondhand textbook marketplace that connected buyers and sellers. I built it with some of my friends and it was just some of the most fun I ever had just building it for that month. It was like that classic, we like stayed in a house together. We did nothing but sleep, eat, drink coffee and code. And then we released this thing and got like 2000 downloads in the first day or first week of it launching. We sold something like 500 textbooks and just helped a lot of students. And I just became completely addicted to that process of ideating problems and building solutions quickly towards it. Then it was like, I wanted to drop out of university. I was convinced, okay, cool, mom, dad, Mark Zuckerberg, I'm coming for him. Don't waste my time with this stuff. Luckily, my parents were a little bit more pragmatic. and like, Tamir, please finish your degree, which I'm very grateful I did eventually listen to after many long conversations. And yes, finished the degree. But my university experience was very much colored by my experience of building Quillo, um, which eventually scaled over the two years to be the largest online secondhand textbook marketplace in South Africa. Amazing. And why do you think so many people want to drop out of college if at the moment they have some entrepreneurial success, a little dose of it? So how do you think that is shipping out? Like it's a good point, right? I think it does take a certain type of person because I started with three other friends and they very much didn't. They were like, I want to focus on my studies. I was like, I'm getting out of here. But I do think it ends up being quite common. Honestly, it's just so much more exciting university, you're sitting there, you need to study for exams, write essays, whatever it might be. Whereas this other thing, every unit of work that you put towards it, you're creating something. And that something has an impact on somebody else. It has this real world tangible output and this potential. You're always seeing this upside. And I think being a first time founder, you're naive to how hard it is. So you're overly optimistic to be like, oh, Mark Zuckerberg did this name entrepreneur X, and you don't realize the sampling bias or the survivor bias that exists there, that you're only hearing the stories of success. And so you're going to assume you're going to be successful. You don't think, okay, this is going to be a long, hard journey. Knowing what I know now of like entrepreneurship, I definitely, like I said, I'm very happy I ended up sticking out my degree. That was certainly the more pragmatic and wise choice. <laughs> How would you advise other college students who may or may not be listening to this podcast who are weighing whether to drop out to pursue being a founder versus not. What advice would you give to someone like that? How would you advise them to think through it? Yeah, it would highly depend on your financial. 99% of the time, don't do it, I think is a simple answer. 99% of the time, it is just not worth it. The risk that you take, because the university is expensive and it's tough to go back. From a financial perspective, from every angle, it's a tough decision to go backwards. And it really is something that just gives you the safety net. One thing I've really learned kind of doing this is it's scary if you don't have a safety net. You're unable to think creatively. You're unable to take the risks you need to take as an entrepreneur. If you feel like these risks will end up with you like losing your job, not knowing where you're going to sleep at night. Those aren't the situations where you're productive. Those aren't the situations where you make amazing things. It's really in situations where you feel relaxed and comfortable. So I think having a safety net is such an important thing. 
if your product and some magical thing, and there is, it's always going to be 0.01%. It just takes off and it works. But it's always impossible to know. I don't know. I think 99% of the time, don't drop out. Finish your degree. Make sure you're stable. And then look at pursuing entrepreneurship afterwards. You're young. You've got your whole life ahead of you. And there you are. Obviously, you have the whole life ahead of you and you're working at Quillo. And what's interesting is that you start shifting gears because you start building different things and you also move to Southeast Asia. So could you talk us through what's happening here? This all happened in the space of a year and a half. Not even. 2020, I think for most people and for the world, was the craziest year ever in the sense of a pandemic, but also for what it kind of translated for more pragmatically or more realistically for me. So 2020 was the year I graduated. I finished a lecture called Computer Engineering. And I was like, cool, I'm free. I finally listened to my parents. I've got a year of one runway where I'm just going to run with Quillo. I'm going to do all the things I've always wanted to do with it. And two months in, worldwide pandemic, COVID, everything shuts down. And so students went at university. So all of a sudden, the core value proposition that I was going for just wasn't being used. People don't need textbooks if you're not attending university. And I had an idea just as people were talking about it more and more. I just saw like this idea, which was people are really going to want to know the statistics. People are really going to want to know how many cases are there. How safe is it to go outside? Can I get news? Because there was also just a lot of disinformation. People had no idea. I remember when it first came out, what were some of the things like drinking soap was like this could cure you of coronavirus or taking a hot bath. Just a lot of dangerous and fake news. So I was like, okay, there's a strong demand for these statistics. There's a strong demand for like authentic news. So I decided to get together with a friend, be like, hey, let's build a, like a weekend project. I literally sent him, there's a Rick and Morty episode. They build an app, Jerry and this alien. And like, there's a famous meme that goes like, do you want to build an app? And that was literally the meme I sent him. <laughs> and that meme changed my life because I sent him that. We ended up building this thing. And this went even more viral than Quillo. Within the first weekend, we had more than 500,000 website hits. And all of a sudden, news journals and articles just starting to reach out. So we were interviewed by BBC, every news journal in, in South Africa. And it became like the de facto place for information for around the COVID um, pandemic. So I had this really exciting project in the form of what was called Corona App. And then Quillo, which I thought, okay, when this all comes back and settles down, I'll be able to come back. And so I put 100% of my energy head down into Corona App. And I really thought this could have a really positive impact on the community around me. I started working on that two or so months in, a lot of crazy stuff. I'll skip over the details. I get approached by a project with the South African presidency. So that South African presidency set up a lot of these tech projects to help use tech in order to just help the country in whatever ways. So there was one on like track and trace, so tracing people who are sick and trying to get the people around them to quarantine. I was approached to ask, hey, can I be project manager for hospital research? So kind of the idea was if a hospital in Joburg was doing something, um, could we get the hospital in Cape Town to know about it? If they need this particular piece of hardware, how can we get this piece of hardware that's over here? So ventilators, masks, PP, et cetera, can we get them over there? People were doing all kinds of hacky stuff. So it was really to like rally a community around that. And I just said, yes. I was like, oh my goodness, working in the South African presidency, let's do it. So then moved on to this project. And it became apparent that the biggest problem was a huge PPE crisis. So the PPE supply chain just completely collapsed because all of a sudden you had a 10x demand for gloves, masks, and other things, and the existing supply couldn't handle it. Hospitals and doctors would have one or two suppliers that they would usually trust, but now those supplies didn't have. And so they went elsewhere, but there was no system in order to verify if PPE was, these sellers were legitimate. And there were horror stories, 
horror stories. Millions of dollars that people got scammed out of. Heard of a guy that spent $20 million on masks, other equipment. He arrives at the warehouse to come and collect it. The first few layers are masks, are actual equipment, and the rest is just newspapers. $20 million worth. PPE was being delivered and transported by armored vans. It's like it was more valuable than gold. So that became apparent. And then I was like, wait, I have this experience. I know this sounds like a marketplace problem. You have buyers and you have sellers and you need some sort of way of connecting legitimate sellers to legitimate buyers. Having the experience I had with Quill, I was like, okay, I know how to set up a marketplace quick. So I did that and that started going just an incredibly exciting but very stressful time. And over the course then of two months working on that project, we delivered thousands of PPE items to frontline workers by actually connecting them to legitimate suppliers. Yeah, that would be my kind of 2020. I'll pause there for a little bit. And how did you end up in Southeast Asia? In the background of all of this, rewind to 2019, December. I was in Johannesburg visiting my sister. I was working on Quillo and I needed to, I finished like breakfast with my family. You might be saying, well, wait, how does this end up in Southeast Asia? But, but you'll see. I finished breakfast with my family and then I was like, I need to go to a coffee shop and do some work. So I went to this one coffee shop and I saw this one guy who was sitting on his laptop coding. And I looked at it, I ordered my coffee, I went and sat down, I looked up again, I was like, I'm just trying to like read his code. And eventually I started feeling quite creepy. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to go and ask this guy, like, hey, what are you building? So I just went up to him and spoke and said, hey, what are you building? And that conversation very similarly was probably the most pivotal like introduction I've ever made because then he told me about this program called Entrepreneur First that he was a part of. And it just sounded incredible. You go to Singapore, do entrepreneur speed dating with a lot of other people. A little bit of context, the biggest struggle I had kind of throughout all of these projects, Quillo and InSupply, was that I was alone. So I was a solo founder in all of them, really pushing it, which is exhausting. It is really, really exhausting. And so this idea of finding a co-founder is really high on my priority list. And this just sounded like the place, just incredible people all looking to do something at the same time and a network of support. So applied for the program, got into the program that that program started August last year. And that's how I ended up in Southeast Asia. Amazing. And I got to ask, so what was your experience like at EF? I think incredible in one word. A couple of feelings I could talk about was the biggest one I remember was imposter syndrome. I think you were person three or four that I spoke to. And I was just, how am I having these conversations? So I was the youngest one in the group. Oh no, there was one, Fu. So me and Fu were the two youngest. And I just finished out of university. Everyone else there is like MBA at some big name, Stanford, Harvard, or has a PhD in nanorobotics or AI and everything else in between, or like veteran startup founders that have sold before or exited a company. It's like, how am I here? How am I supposed to ask someone, be like, hey, I deserve 50% of any company we start. So I remember that feeling very distinctly. I'm a strong believer in the saying that goes, you're the average of the five people you surround yourself with. So you raise to the quality of the people around you. While this feeling was scary, it was incredible because I knew that just like through osmosis or whatever it might be, just by being around these people and holding myself to the standard and pushing myself, this would be how I would grow. And that was certainly true. And how would you think about advice for people who are thinking about joining a program like Entrepreneur First or Antler? I'd say do it. It's a truly incredible program. It relates back to what I was saying previously, like not being in a position where you have to make this successful. If this doesn't work, everything else collapses because you can't think creatively like that. Programs like Entrepreneur First and Antler do is create that safety net. It's just like you're getting paid. 
even if you come out of this and it doesn't work, you have an incredible network and just further opportunities. So it's really an incredible program from that perspective. If you're interested in entrepreneurship, this is a fantastic entry vector to do so. My advice would be apply to get in, work hard. Yeah, just I guess that's a much longer conversation <laughs> on how to actually get accepted into one of the programs. So I'm trying to think, like, what was the thing that maybe for me got me in? I don't even know. I think it was because of my previous startup experiences. There's so many different ways. I think that's the thing. There's a million different ways from, so EF has that classic thing of domain experts, catalyst, and maybe industry. I think for people, and maybe you have existing jobs, it's like understanding that after a certain period of time, like you do actually understand that industry really well. And so you have the potential to find someone who is a little bit more I suppose, not an entrepreneurial, but has that just let's get this done kind of attitude and maybe someone with a fresher mind. So kind of that pairing does work. So it's about that confidence knowing that you do have that experience. Above and beyond that, I'd argue it's just about doing stuff and building stuff. So create things, create side projects, speak to people, get involved in different things. I think the more kind of experience you have creating stuff, the better. And then I think the biggest one is to just apply. I think too many people, way too many people think or just don't think that they're good enough when in fact they are. And there is zero harm. There is absolutely zero harm in applying. And actually you learn a lot in the process of applying. You learn a lot about, okay, what are the things that they're looking for? If you go through the process of then speaking to people, be like, hey, I'm looking to apply to EF. Can you help me out? People want to help out. If you're able to speak to an alum that's gone through it, they'll help you. So that process of even just applying is useful in of itself, even if you don't end up getting in. Yeah, that's pretty good advice. And a lot of people are really concerned about dilution, ownership, equity. I think you and I have discussed that before. So there's a point of view going in, there's a point of view when you're going through it, there's a point of view after you're done with the program. So talk us through how, having gone through all those three phases, how would you think about the equity stake that Entrepreneur First takes in a company and how would you advise founders to think about it? So it's interesting. From my initial perspective, and this is as well for context, I suppose, South African venture capital, because I never knew how small of a market it was until I came to Singapore. So this idea of getting 65,000, like their stock investments is 65,000 US or 75,000 US dollars for 10%. In South Africa, that is a great deal. That is fantastic if you can get $75,000 for 10%. Some of the investments offers I was getting at InSupply or previously was 200,000 Rand for 20 or 30%. What's that? 20,000, $30,000. So the scale of the market and I suppose the perspective you're coming from plays into that. So initially it wasn't a thought even. As I started going into it and then speaking to people from different perspectives, a Silicon Valley perspective, a Singapore perspective, then I realized, okay, this is actually quite a large chunk of equity that these guys are taking. So for example, now at YC, like raising 10% or giving away 10%, we could be looking at anywhere above a million dollars. So the change, so 75,000 to a million for the same amount of equity, it is a big change. Having said that, however, the price of a co-founder is invaluable. Again and again, that 10% for finding Pulkit, my current co-founder, it's a no-brainer. This wouldn't exist without him, and it was the primary reason I ended up moving. It is a lot of equity for a small amount of funding, but within the context of finding someone that you can build and go in this journey with, worth it every time. Great. I think that's exactly how people should think about it, which is that early on you say something pretty special, which is, in a worst case scenario, you get a stipend to give you the creativity to think and meet someone. And on the best case scenario, 
it is expensive equity if you look at it as capital. But if you're truly there to meet someone and to bring someone a new idea and you actually do come up with it while you're there, then actually it's good value. So kind of thinking about that, wrapping things up here. Tammy, could you tell us about time that you have been brave? The bravest really would be the move to Singapore. Or like, oh, maybe brave, brave is a, a strong word, but the hardest decision I made was moving to Singapore in a couple of things. So InSupply was going. I had the choice to carry on going with InSupply. It had this traction, had thousands of like interested buyers, hundreds of suppliers on the marketplace. And kind of initially, if you go back to some of the interviews there, I was talking about creating like the Alibaba of Africa, connecting African manufacturers to the global market. And I got really interested and passionate about that idea. And then I was thinking, okay, I'm going to move in the middle of a pandemic to a country I've never been in, knowing no one there, to this program that I've heard is okay, to start something new. Going through that thought process was daunting. And like I had a full-on pros and cons list kind of going on either side. And I think it comes down again to this conversation of a co-founder. It ultimately does thinking about, okay, if I spend the next five years building in supply, I'm doing it alone. Right? I'll maybe be able to hire people and get a team, but it's not the same as having a thought partner, having someone in the trenches with you. And that was the thing that I just prioritized above all else. I was like, if this is the thing I can get through this, then I'm going to do it. And I think there's one saying or quote I really, I think colors a lot of my perspective of life, which is to say, you grow at the edge of your comfort zone. So if you're not challenged, if you're comfortable, you're not growing. It's when things are bloody scary, when you feel like you're borderline drowning and you somehow find the way to swim through, that's when you grow. That's when you learn. I was like, okay, I'm scared of this decision. I'm scared of doing this because it's going to make me uncomfortable as hell. Okay, let's do it. Amazing. And when you did that move, what surprised you, I guess, moving from South Africa to Southeast Asia? Functioning public transport and 24-7 electricity. <laughs> Up there. Just the like, concentration of just unbelievable people. Like every other day, I was just having incredible conversations about something new. Cryptocurrencies, AI, data science. The selection of people that I found, I just wasn't expecting such a good mix of thought-provoking people and thinking over that time, I guess. And if you could go back, all the way back to the time when you were a senior at university, which was not too long ago, what advice would you give yourself back then? Slow down. I always had this thing that needs to get done now. I need to finish whatever might be. I need to speak to these investors this week. I need to finish this feature this week. I need to get to a certain point by this point in time. And, and you need to work nonstop. I hit burnout so many times kind of thinking that way. The key thing I realized is that you're doing, <laughs> this is a, a heavy topic to end on, but you're doing it to live in the moment more. It's not about the process of building this kind of stuff. The reason I do it isn't for the destination. It isn't for some sort of end goal that you eventually reach. I think we're very good at convincing ourselves that once we arrive at a certain point, then we'll be happy, we'll be fulfilled. It's never the case. Whenever you arrive at point X, it's then point Y and then point Z and then point A, whatever it might be. The thing I kind of realized going through a lot of this burnout and hardship was like, the thing to prioritize is just enjoying the moment, kind of optimizing for, am I having fun right now? Am I learning? Am I growing? If I could get that, I still struggle with that sometimes, I think we all do today, but if I could make that so much more clear to me two years ago, the level of happiness that I'd go through those two years would be so much greater. Amazing, Tamir. What a story. 
So I'd love to wrap up by summarizing the three big themes from this conversation. The first, of course, is just this journey of being someone growing up in South Africa and uh, making that set of decisions around what you want to do with life, <laughs> from gaming as a career to being an engineer to exploring and catching the entrepreneurial bug. So that's really a fun story. And I think the second, of course, is a little bit about the debate about incubators and you know matching programs like Entrepreneur First and Antler, about how to think about equity, how to think about matching, how to think about what the risks are. And lastly, of course, thank you so much for sharing about your founding journey. And one of the reflections that you've had is really about really taking a moment to pace yourself and not burn out too quickly. So thank you so much, Tamia, for coming on the show. Good summary. Yeah, no, it's been a pleasure. Been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. <laughs>